You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Smoke. 
This key is the bronze in my brown left eye, but what shuddered tonight is unclear. This key is the pitch and the torque of my voice may fit in a favorable ear. If coins make a key to the turnpike, the toll booth is a bridle latch. My vein is impressed by a needle. Even hardwood submits to an axe. But you won't turn a mind with an order. No will will unclench for a fact. I've opened notes in a song once or twice, but mostly it's puncture and scratch. This last key, of course, is a wristwatch. I turn it by sitting stock still, by letting the clouds turn around me, by adding more drinks to my bill. Eventually, everything opens. The blue fist of evening, the maw in these rocks. With a click, it all fastens behind me. This last key is also a lock. I didn't have any, I wasn't planning on reading any, but I think 
So I think I'll try this one on you. Um, but I have to warn you, I've got a buddy of mine, one of my best friends from grad school is a horror writer. He writes horror stories and horror novels. And we had a conversation recently where um, we were talking about like, the most disturbing thing to come across on the page. Um, and uh, my, you know, my nomination was like something terrible happening to children, right? some psychopathic torturer, harmer of children. And he passionately argued against that. He said the most horrible thing that you can encounter uh, written in writing um, is another person's sex life. By much more, much more disturbing than, um, well, any alternative. So this is a horror poem and a love poem. Um, it's, maybe some of you know the poem that it, that it alludes to in the title, um, Galloway Canals, After Making Love Your Footsteps. Right? Um, it starts, for I can roar, for I can snore like a bullhorn or stay up late talking with any reasonably sober Irishman. And Fergus, that's Galloway Canals' son, will only sink deeper into his dreamless sleep, which goes by all in one flash. But let there be that heavy breathing or a stifled come cry anywhere in the house, and he will wrench himself awake and make for it on the run. Right? This is that kind of poem. Mine is After Making Love Your Bird Song. The other, the other thing I should say is when we moved into the house where we live now, it's an older house, and the only door in the house with a lock was the bathroom when we first got there. <laughs> Ours is, is this. After Making Love Your Bird Song. It's been a pretty athletic performance, if I do say so myself. And as we finish, I'm winded, just holding Jennifer close and about to start kissing the salt off her neck when the birds pipe up at the window. All I have left it open to the breeze, more than warm already now at 6 a.m. this August Tuesday, and a motley flock is gathered on the sill just as pretty as you please. There's a blue jay thrusting his hips and warbling what sounds like lay, lay, lay. And there's a mockingbird with a long, clear, hot damn whistle. A cardinal couple, too, three goldfinches bobbing and puffing out their chests to whoop and coo. A team of hummingbirds leering in over the other guy's shoulders, not singing themselves, of course, but flitting back and forth with their long tongues out, licking the air in what's clearly vicarious pleasure. I won't lie, it's flattering, this distant treatment. But just as I turn laughing, can you believe this, to Jennifer? I see our tender children in the bedside with their big eyes glistening in a soft, oh my. And when the five-year-old Josh sees me see him, there's syrup in his smile and he says, Daddy, that was beautiful. Mommy, you were so, so beautiful. And Daddy, when you threw Mama in the air and spun sideways, I was scared, but it wasn't scary really, scary beautiful. And I want to be just like you when I grow up. And little Ellie goes, Mama, you're a princess. And then she does her darling hair desk, you know, holding one leg up behind her, tilting her head. From hell, that means pure respect. Baby Phillips too little to talk or even crawl, but he's rolled in here somehow and he's on his back, just giggling and cheesing the way he does. And he's freshly nursed, and I tickle his soft, round belly and sing. You know, their support makes me think maybe we're doing something right as parents. But still, it's our children. So I reach back to pull the sheet up over our nakedness, and then there are our neighbors, Bill and Sharon, in the doorway with these huge grins on their faces. And Bill's giving me the big thumbs up, 
And Sharon Flush says, wow, you guys, wow. That is it. That is sex. And there's our mailman, Mike, behind him on tiptoe, and others too behind him. Some of them hooting, and one woman calls out, she was worried he'd snap the headboard. And then everyone's laughing and cheering and acting out their favorite parts in slow motion right there in our upstairs hallway. And Jennifer and I are laughing too now, humbled by their generous applause, but also proud and happy, finally, to be recognized for this gift we always knew was special. And then in a blitz, the birds are swirling through the room, landing on the dresser, and the night table, and the bookshelves, snowy owls and a cockatiel, and two swans by the dirty clothes basket, nodding their necks in a bow and fluting. And last, this peacock that must weigh 50 pounds comes sailing in, screeching a half-baked rapture that chills us all as he fans his tail and quivers mildly. And in the midst of this display, Jennifer rises, smiling that coy, clean-and-moon smile of hers. And she takes my hand and pulls me up and we bow. And I don't know if it's sweat and the shine of exertion or what, but our hair and our loins and our eyes and our teeth and everything. Everything's glowing. Feet. Stranger, they are dirty. 
You have come so far so harshly. Blend miles through silt and brambles, noxious fogs and mud fields, dunes of char beneath the sun still, all hidden sandals. Take my chair. This dry, blonde, scotch-on ice will douse your pride. I kneel to yawn straps that bite your ankles, loose the vamps that vice your parcels, slide bruised heels into my lap. There's fragrant water in a wooden vessel, sanded smooth and gauged, so that your stride can lose its travel in the lather's pestle and cascade. You're no one. And you're special, drawn to leave before you're even dry. The paths bathed off, revealing paths inside. I'll make this my, my last one at times. I have um, four kids, but when I say that in public, um, I kind of love this about my kids. They always correct me that I don't have four kids. Um, we had five, but one died in childbirth. We've got four living kids. Um, I'm reminded of this um, talking with, with James a little bit today. Um, my son was named Henry, just as, as James's son. Um, we, we shared that. I thought I'd read maybe the, the first of the uh, crown of sonnets that I've written to Henry. I don't write much about my own life, but this has been something that um, I've been wanted by for, for a while. Um, we lost Henry five years ago, a little more than five years ago now. Um, so the, the poem's called Ultrasound in this first section, um, this first little sign is his picture. We framed an ultrasound of you and Peter holding hands or almost in the womb. Your moon-bright arms crossed in a black balloon with weak and weights and heights and millimeters pencil on the side. We say it's good that he at least was with you when you died. That unlike us, you will never know the quiet of being lonely or what naked falsehood feels like in one's mind. You see, it's false to say your death was somehow grace. It's grace that spared Cain's life and later gave Eve other sons, despite creation's wastes and faults. I wish you could have known love's aftertastes. I wish you had a chance to hate your brother. James has written the best poem that has ever been written about Cain. I don't know if we'll get to, to hear it tonight, but um, I just had that thought again as I was reading uh, that poem, um, my Cain poem. Um, so James, what a pleasure to be with you. I'll get out of the way and let you take the stage. Baltimore, where he teaches in the rainy seminars at Hopkins. 
Prophet's son, his new book, uses language both conversational and musical to meditate on the contradictions inside each of us. The darkness and the light, the child self and the adult self, our troubled histories and our crushed starts. Reading the poems, I felt with fresh clarity how these contraries weave together. As in the last lovely poem, where an engine war made by adult workers turns into, quote, the empty noise that children find in the cornish shells that sea snails form and leave behind. I look forward to the beautifully spiraling journeys that James's poems will take us on tonight. Please help me to welcome James Arthur. Thank you, Shaden. Thank you for having us. And um, it is such a joy and an honor to be reading here with David, um, who is, you know, a true poet. You know, that there are a lot of people with that job description and few people with that vocation. And uh, David is a real, is, is one of, is a real deal.
I, uh, like David, I've been uh, writing a lot out of my experience of fatherhood. I have a, as David mentioned, I have a, a son, Henry, who's now eight. And uh, for me, reading books to him really has uh, uh, changed the rhythms of my poems and changed some of their emotional cadences too, I think. Um, you all are going to recognize immediately which book inspired this poem. It's called Hundred Acre Wood. Some of these stories are too sweet for me. Winnie the Pooh is so innocent, his little songs leave me cold. But I like this, your hand across my hand, your head against my shoulder. Your first winter, I carried you even along the margins of the highway, strapped against my chest in a sling. You never can tell with bees, says Pooh, who seems to believe that almost nothing can be told. But I am your morose, restless father, and you are four years old. You like front-end loaders and every kind of train. I like reading to rooms of strangers and a few drinks at the airport while I'm waiting for my plane. I like the book's final chapter, a story you don't yet understand, in which boy and bear climb to Galleon's lap for one last look out across the land at the sandy pit, the six pines, the hundred-acre wood. Don't forget me, says the boy to the bear, who has no wish to understand what he does not already know. Little boy who I carried through the winter in northern Michigan, I like hearing you in the morning when you lie in your dark room and sing. This next poem is a little longer. It's called School for Boys. I believe in the power of original sin, in the wound that keeps on wounding. The son of the suicide becomes a suicide. His own son becomes a drunk. You're not meant to be so unhappy, you think. So, it must be something that you've done. There must be a reason why you are the way you are. I've forgiven the teenage pedophile who lived a few doors down when I was seven. The things he did to me, I'm sure, were done to him at home. Sunday afternoons I'd be sent out into the yard where I could do no harm beyond decapitating my mother's tulips or torturing the roly-polies that lived in a rotted-out retaining wall around Flowerbed. I and the boys would fight, shoplift, wreck each other's fortresses of plywood boards and brick, or earn a nickel from the beer store for every bottle that we found in the no-man's land of alleys that led both north and south. The anger shame. Over time, these things just become a 
piece of who you are. You build around them since you can't burn them down. One boy, by far the most precocious forager in our tribe, stole a box of 3D movie glasses from the loading dock behind the cineplex and brought them to my parents' house with the idea that we sell the glasses pair by pair at school, but the box sat below the deck going nowhere. In time, its contents were scattered and destroyed. In time, I was sent to a private school dedicated to forming the whole boy, his body, his conscience, his character, his mind. There, too, some men did prey on children in darkness of a different kind. My fellow students gave me lessons and strength and weakness that I won't forget. And yet, some of the faculty, masters they were called, were among the most decent men I've known. One giant of a physics teacher who sometimes would grab boys by the collar or roar into their faces while gripping them by the ear. The man roamed the corridors, scowling on a rolling cloud of fear, brought me into his office, and after making me swear I'd never tell another boy, opened a sketch pad watercolor paintings. They were his own, the most fragile lilies, snapdragons, and other flowers, unfolding like translucent creatures from the ocean floor. He let me sit there in silence, turning pages for half an hour. Life is not a boy's school, he told me. Be one man for the world and another for yourself. Then he put his paintings away on a high shelf. When I was seven, all that lay years ahead. In my second grade class, there was a pale, elfin, redhead, I won't say his name, whose mother always sent him to school in a tie and blazer. How many times we made that boy cry, I just don't remember. He said he was an extraterrestrial in disguise, and that his people would soon arrive and kill us, everyone, or take us off to be vivisected. And his story didn't change when we threw his books into the trash or when we pinned him to the ground and made him eat the dirty snow. I think I have believed him, but his people never came. The uh, next poem is about one of my uh, childhood heroes, an important figure in my childhood. Um, this poem is called Darth Vader. This battle station has no ping-pong and no decor, only consoles, catwalks, a reactor core. You are angry all the time. You've always been an angry man. Fuck the people of Alderaan. Give in to your anger. Give in to your hate. 
you need more subordinates to asphyxiate. Your task this morning, standing at the window, staring into outer space, your face is a mask. There is a mask underneath the mask, underneath the mask, underneath your face. I'm going to change tasks here and go back to the children's books. Uh, this one is based on a, a book by Eric Carl. He's uh, best known for the uh, very hungry caterpillar. Um, this book is the less known, um, but also very, uh, very quiet cricket. Children's book. In which a newborn cricket walks across the field, unable to reply to the greetings of the mantis and the moth and the dragonfly, until his rubbing of wing on wing becomes a sound that can speak for him. When the last page turns to look itself, makes a cheering. Here is the church and the steeple. Here is the coffee table where the child lines up a squad of plastic people. Can the child tell the difference between himself and other things? He totters back and forth on a tractor mounted on a string. Here is the tension of a string pulled tight and the father rolling over and over and over in the night. The cricket book, after much rough reading, now chirps nightly on its own. Finally, the father, knowing what must be done, opens up the boat with a sturdy paring knife, looking for whatever little engine, whatever little part, makes the lifelike cricket sound. Here is the trailer, the bailer, the harrow, the plow. Can a stem grow up from inside a stone? Here is how to sit in silence and be alone. Here is the yard where yesterday the child sat watching as blowing branches made and remade, daggers of light and shade. The book's voice box to the father's eye looks like a dime-sized bicycle bell, and as he pries it free, the chirping intensifies, becoming something like the death cry of a creature with an actual beating heart, something like a metal prong banging indifferently on another metal part. I'm going to close off with uh, two last poems. As Sheila mentioned, I'm a uh, I'm uh, Canadian as well as American. I, uh, I uh, was born in the U.S. to an American mother and I uh, grew up in my father's Canadian mother and I grew up in Toronto. Um, and uh, I have sort of an ambivalent relationship to Canadian poetry. <laughs> um, I came <clears throat> down here 20 years ago to escape it and to escape being part of it and now I just want to take me back. Um, but um, one of the uh, uh, one of us, one of the main, for many people, one of the 
central figures in Canadian poetry is a poet named Al Purdy. He was never a hell of a lot of critical uh, praise, but he, um, um, he built his own house and was a self-taught poet. And uh, many people think of him as Canada's first truly Canadian poet. And I uh, had the experience of living in his house for a couple months with my wife and son um, a few years ago. So this poem uh, is called In Al Purdy's House. It is strange, living in the house of a writer who has died. I use your cutlery, your typewriter. I read your autobiography while lying in your bed, trying to imagine Robin Lake and this lakeside piece of land as they were 60 years ago, when you and your filthy A-frame by hand, with no experience of carpentry, using salvaged lumber and whatever materials you could find. Critics seem to always talk you up or talk you down, casting you as the forerunner of all Canadian poets who are fall, or us as a roughneck and a clown. For me, it's enough that you were many times demoted during a war you found unreal. You lived and wrote according to an image you had in mind. That you called your house a drum for the north wind, a kind of knot in time. Your mother's good china is still here, asleep inside the hush. History, your personal history, hangs around the record player which I haven't dared to touch. But this year there's been so much rain and Robin Lake has climbed up 15 feet on the grass, making an island of the short peninsula you and your earth added to the shore. Standing at the window near the kitchen watching a single sailboat pass back and forth across a distance that couldn't be more than a mile from end to end, I feel a collapse of distinctions between the real and the unreal, between what is already taking place and what is happening right now, as if time had been doubled over into itself like a sheet of folded steel. Cottage country becomes back country as houses along the shoreline blink out and disappear. I know better than to make myself at home in a house that isn't mine. Soon I'll leave the keys on the counter, turn the lock on the inside, step out and close the door. Maybe because I'm left-handed, I made my way through your collective poems back to front. So I ended with the love songs of a young man. Poems for women you seduced or thought you might seduce. And I began with your regrets, the many places you visited, and your elegies for friends who during my backward progress came to life while not alone. And uh, I'm going to end with a poem called On the Move. Now that my work's done, and it's Saturday, now that my young son is out somewhere with his mom, 
I might as well roam all morning, spying on the filthy squirrels and on the shapes that disintegrating leaves I painted on the sidewalk. I might as well spend the morning talking to myself, hoping for meaning and unmeaning to braid and begin teaching me what to say. Some days I feel like a monarch at wing, meandering, not really deciding where I go, as programmed as the stubborn birds building nests of twigs and spit. Each bird pipes the song that it was taught and transmits the song to its own offspring. Earthworms driven up by last night's rain have squirmed onto the asphalt to slowly fry. I save some who glue and revel, but they're just so many, and they almost seem to want to die. Day by day, I'm feeling my way to fatherhood, learning what my son is to me, and I to him, my boy, my kid, an eight-toothed homunculus clutching an acorn in his fist. Bewildered that a paper plate set down on the grass on a windy day won't stay put, but lofts and spins away. By the time I'm downtown, I'm turning back in thought, if not yet with my feet. Before I'm back on my own street, all twice walked by a little wedge of ground where people of this neighborhood bury their dead dogs and cats. A raw eye bone, a ball of yarn. Waterlogged by the frowsy rain. Animals have never meant very much to me, but I've got them on brain these days. How magnetic navigation brings spawning salmon home. How predation, variation, and the winnowing down of things gave shape to a world of species, giving them gills, wings, and feet. But I'd rather be dead than be a creature of any other kind. I walk upright, practicing the song of my species by speaking. Thank you. Thank you so much for the beautiful meeting. Thank you. Um, so we have time for a little Q and A. Um, would anyone like to ask? Best 
thing ever. I mean, I never saw it was done and thought that I thought, thought I'm sorry that it was over and wanted to live in that world forever. And I thought that being a writer would be the best, the best possible way to live. And I, uh, uh, that still is in many ways my ideal, but I, uh, I tried to be a novelist in my early 20s and my, my fiction was not very good at all. At all. Uh, and I, um, uh, you know, I, at a certain point I realized that really what I love is not stories, but the sound of language. And uh, I love the sound of words and the music that words can make. And that that really is actually my point of connection more than telling stories. Um, my stories didn't make for good stories, but once I realized that I could write a poem and it could just be about a tangerine or something, um, and, and that metaphor could just allow it to grow and become expressive, I felt so my story is pretty similar and I loved fiction as a child and, and maybe the, the books for me were I love the Lord of the Rings books um, the Chronicles of Narnia were really important books I can remember um, very well read, sitting on the, the couch with my mom like me on one side my little sister on the other those were some really special times and I, I always thought that I wanted to, to write fiction too. I, I never read a poem that I enjoyed until college. And my experience of poetry in high school was uh, um, that it was boring and that even the teacher didn't care much about it and was trying to get through that section of the, um, our programming as quickly as she possibly could. But I, I took a creative writing class because I was interested in trying fiction as, as an undergraduate. And um, so we read Elizabeth Bishop in that class, and I can remember very, very clearly the like the moment sitting in my dorm room and reading the Man Moth for the first time, and it was it was a kind of language that I had never experienced before. I think part of it was the the attraction of like a narrative situation, but then one that didn't want to, that was less interested in what's going to happen next, and more what does this moment mean. Uh, how might we reflect on it and spin? It sort of honored a, a vertical reading more than a horizontal reading. It's always trying to get to the next thing. And I, just, I got hooked. several poems that are um, metered and rhymed um, tonight. I think probably about half of what I write is um, in fixed form or at least some, some sort of fixed meter. 
Um, that wasn't always very interesting to me, but the, the last few years I've been more interested in, in writing in fixed forms. I think I'm, I'm attracted to the, the ways that um, some sort of technical rigor forces my mind to think in directions that it wouldn't naturally. Um, I feel like I, I'm more interesting if I have something to push against a little bit. So um, lately I've been writing more in, in meter and rhyme. There's very little in my, my book that is metered or rhymed, though. Um, it's, it's just one of my, the things that I find really pleasurable about the language is all sorts of echoes and um, not just a, a fixed rhythm, but the way that um, rhythm gets disrupted and the way that, that um, a metrical pattern plays against the, the rhythms of the sentence. Um, that those things are really interesting to my really interesting to my ear, and I'm trying to recreate that pleasure on the page too. Um, for me too, the um, the music of poetry is really my point of connection. You know, I, I um, my mom used to read me Yeats poems when I was a teenager, and and it just it's so hypnotic, and it's always been what I, it, it always, when I um, lose track of why I like poetry, which happens sometimes, you know, I, I will dig up my favorite poems and read them aloud, and just hearing them again, I just feel like I'm caught up in something great and beautiful, and the, the joy and challenge of trying to write something like that is what, is what I love. Um, but you're absolutely right about the form of my poems being um, irregular. You have a great ear. That's uh, you're you're absolutely right. I use a lot of internal rhyme, and uh, my poems are, um, by my my definition, they're all free verse. Um, so they do contain a lot of rhyme. They contain stretches of uh, iambic. Um, uh, I mean iambic. Rhythm, in um, that there are uh, stressed and unstressed syllables in alternation, but it's no fixed number of them per line. And sometimes I, I break, sometimes I bring that, uh, abandon that rhythm, and then bring it back. Um, and um, I, I don't really know why I write that way, or why I felt compelled to write that way, except that um, for me. Uh, as much as my heroes tend to write sonnets and villanelles and pantoums, and that really, in many ways, has formed my tastes, I, uh, I always, the, the thing that has never made it feel right for me, as, a, as it just, uh, that I can't find, quite find my own voice in it, is that uh, inescapably for me, there's a suggestion of order in those, um, in those forms, there's a however, however, um, even if, even if even if there's also disorder, even if the sonnet is used, even if there are metrical substitutions and slant rhymes and everything else, what's inescapably there for me is a an expression of the poet's command of the materials, and I've always just felt I'm too screwed up <laughs> to, uh, for that to be right for me. So I've always looked for a form that would allow me to express what I see as kind of a seething chaos on the inside and to try to find a form that would, that would be expressive of that.
You asked about how poems start, and I, I think that, at least in my experience, they start in a number of different ways. That sometimes I'll start with a, a rhythm or a sound that I'm, I'm trying to chase in the first line or two, um, and maybe those tend to start as poems in meter and rhyme. But there are other times where I start with an image, and sometimes I even start with an idea, or I have like kind of the shape of the poem, or it's um, an idea that I want to get to at the end of it. And maybe those start as free verse poems. But I, I also will start a poem that I think is going to be a sonnet, and it dies in that form, and it becomes free verse later on. So it's, uh, I'm not sure that I know at the beginning, even if, I, if I'm starting out in one direction or another, I don't know necessarily how the poem's going to wind up taking shape. And when the poem gets boring to me, often I'll, I'll want to make some sort of radical adjustment, maybe taking it out of, um, out of meter or putting it in. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, revision. So um, just sort of like what, do you, what are things you find yourself constantly putting in a poem or taking out of, poem, out of a poem when you revise? Um, what's something that like constantly makes you unsatisfied and it keeps you coming back to a poem before you feel like it's ready? Um, just the revision process, um, especially you know, in making a, a book. Um, well, for me, uh, uh, I you know I feel that I know a poem is done when I can read it without, with, I can put it away for a few weeks and get out again and read it and still like it. You know, normally when I finish a poem, I'll just think, "Wow, that's great!" Uh, for about twenty-four hours, and then you know, I'll look at it again and oh, it's terrible. <laughs> you know, I'm so glad I didn't show this to anybody. Um, but uh, um, but more specifically, uh, in terms of uh, in terms of what I revise for and what I revise against, um, for me the um, the biggest problems are problems of vanity, one way or another. You know, my wish to sound clever, my wish to sound good, my wish to sound. Uh, smart, sophisticated, ironic, whatever. Um, my wish to control how the reader sees me um, is always what's in the way. Uh, and so the only way that I can really bring the poem into the form that it needs to be is to get to the point where I can just look at it and say, no, this poem is pretentious. No, this poem's boring. No, this poem is soppy or sentimental or it's too cynical or it's or it's you know too pie-eyed and to look at it and just look at it with a cold eye and say that's not right that's not true um and uh to just keep working on it until it speaks and speaks to me in a voice that i trust and that just takes time because you don't want to believe any of those things of yourself and what you've written but you know, you put it away for a few days and you look at it again and <laughs> you, can see, you can see all the ways in which you haven't been honest with yourself or with the poem or the reader. And, and so I just try to revise towards honesty as I see it. I, I think I know some of my bad habits. Um, I can certainly fall in love with a rhyme or with a sound and decide that I've, I've said something that I haven't said because I like the way that it sounds. 
Um, another bad habit would be um, explaining things that are already implicit um, in image somewhere else or maybe even just in the tone of the poem. And I'm, I'm usually trying to address those things when I'm revising um, to find the places where I've fallen in love with the sound to the detriment of the poem or where I'm explaining something that shouldn't be explained. Those are maybe my two biggest um, errors. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a, a process of reading the poem over and over again, usually out loud, and, and um, spending enough time with it. And spending enough time away from it, you sort of mentioned that too, James, that you, you put it away for two or three weeks. Sometimes it takes longer than that. that I, I often think that the poem's done, um, and then maybe it's, um, it's even been published somewhere or something, but I need like a longer period away from it. And then I start spotting the, the really important places where it needs adjustment. It might take a year or so of, ha- of really be having the poem set aside before I can look at it um, as objectively as I really should be. I don't know how can you understand me? Okay. I haven't been able to put this into words. Language is something that as animals we communicate with, right? We do this all the time and I don't know really we don't know. I, maybe we do, I don't know where it comes from. That this animal nature needs to express itself and needs to express itself in language. I feel that what you have done and what poets do is something behind that. It's not, it's not exactly the human language. It's a music that comes from inside and it's, it's a shape to the music. That's about what I have to say. Thank you. You know, I, I think that's I think that is the goal as I as I see it. Um, I uh, I want I um, I want the poem to seem as if it, for me you know I want the poem to just seem as if it, as it, as it should be. Uh, and so yes, it has it has something to say and it has a and or it'll have a range of meanings and different readers will find it what the specific reading meaning that a, a person will find and it will vary from reader to reader or from one mood to another. But I want but what I also want to be there is the sense that someone looks at it and thinks that it's as it should be. Um, that it that the thing is well made. Um, even though as I said earlier, I mean I like to have that sense of seething chaos in the poem, but I also Want someone to? I don't want someone to look at it and just think it's arbitrary. You know, I want it to seem as if it's every bit is where it should be. And my model for that is, uh, in my own mind, it's you know, it's an important model. Is, is there's a painting uh, by Jackson Pollock and the, uh, the ball rhythm uh, that's in the MoMA. And the first time I saw it, I just thought, oh my god, you know, what a perfect piece of art. Because yeah, I looked at it, and I couldn't see any pattern. I couldn't see any. There was nothing in it that I could see that was that suggested, made plain to me what its architecture was. But at the same time, I looked at it and thought, it's absolutely right. I, you know, anything, anything added, anything taken away would make it worse. Uh, and that's, 
that's what you want, I think. At least that's what I want from a poem because it's um, you you know you've got these feelings and you you have to do something with them, but you can if you can take them and you can turn them into a shape that you think is right, and then you're you're doing something with these feelings that otherwise would just be welling up inside you. Yeah, I, that's my feeling about it. There's a sense when you're first drafting the poem where you're building it, you're putting the pieces together and it all adds up to be kind of the, the first draft. But then after that, at least in, in my experience, I feel like I'm cutting away, that I'm trimming things back or I'm adjusting the surface in some way. And that it's not so much that even though that's where most of the writing is happening, I don't feel so much that I'm writing as much as I am discovering what was in the language that I'm trimming things back or paring the poem down and there's something buried underneath it that I just dig out that is, is less something that I'm constructing and more something that I'm discovering, maybe. Um, <clears throat> sorry, other questions? So, I was struck you seemed to have this gentleness and this sort of sweetness to your uh, delivery and to your poems, even though maybe you're sincere underneath. <laughs> uh, and that was interesting. I, that's refreshing. Uh, so I have a question for you, James. Uh, you spoke of leaving uh, uh, Canada and then feeling a, an urge to go back. Um, what uh, I don't Read much, haven't read much Canadian poetry, but what for you distinguishes it from poems that uh, are in here? Thanks. I, um, uh, I think to do your, uh, to do real justice to your question, I'd have to really give it some time, give it, give it, um, give a longer answer than I can, but I. But speaking broadly, um, I feel like what defines it for me uh, in terms outside of myself, you know, uh, not, not, in other words, not my own relationship to it, but if I were to just try to answer, first of all, the question of what, what's different about Canadian poetry compared to American poetry, um, I would say that... Um, I was struck when I came to the United States and did an MFA in poetry and took my first poetry workshops, really. I was struck by the very high level of technical refinement in American poetry. I and mean, I just felt like I knew nothing when I, when I took my first poetry work. And I, you know, I, I published some in Canadian magazines and felt confident, too confident, in myself as a poet when I moved to the U.S., and then I realized I took a workshop and I thought, oh my God, I don't know anything. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, so from my perspective, there's a very high level of technical refinement to American poetry compared to what I, at least the poetry that I grew up with in Canada. But that being said, sometimes I look at um, Canadian poetry, a book of Canadian poetry, and I think something like, and I just find poems in it that are so wild and strange and idiosyncratic and I just look at it and think, well, that would have been killed in a workshop. That would have been killed right out of the person in a workshop. Um, so sometimes 
Uh, it's a mix, you know, sometimes <laughs> both good and bad. Sometimes I see a Canadian poem and think that wouldn't have survived in a workshop, and it's like, and it, maybe it shouldn't have. Uh, and sometimes I think, it, think, well, that's too bad that there aren't poems like that that can thrive in a workshop environment. And as for me personally, you know, I just, uh, uh, it's smaller, you know. I mean, literally, people, literally every Canadian poet practically knows one another. They all know one another. And so, you know, someone will be mean to someone else, and then all the other Canadian poets take sides one way or another, and everything's personal. You know, someone wrote a review about someone else, but, you know, you all kind of know each other, so uh, it's really, <laughs> people take it personally. And I just felt so glad to get out of that and be in uh, the you know, much wider sea of American poetry where there's kind of comfort and safety actually in the anonymity that, um, of, of, that most of us enjoy in the American poetry world. You know, you can just write and if people don't like it, they can just tune out. They don't feel the need to destroy you. <laughs> um, so, but that being said, you know, Canada is where I grew up and I do, I do miss it too. So, um, you could read one poem. If you want to, if, if it's quite short, you can do two, but we're going to end with poetry. So, um, and you can just read from the chairs in whatever order you prefer. Thank you for those questions. Those are great questions, by the way. Well, David, shall I go? Um, and this, this time, shall I go first? And, sure. And you have closing word? Yeah. Um, so I'm going to uh, read the, the poem that David mentioned, uh, the Cain, my Cain and Abel poem. Um, so the poems that I read uh, earlier from my second book, The Suicide of the Sun, which came out last year. This poem, uh, this other poem, The Land of Nod, is from my first book, Charms Against Lightning. Uh, Growing up, I barely knew the Bible but read and reread the part when Cain drifted east or was drawn that way into a place of desolation, the land of Nod, there to begin with a life of unknown origin, another race of men under the mark of God. As a boy, I thought Nod would be a place where the blue scylla would bloom gray a country of the rack and screw, the serrated sword, where the very serving cups were bone. As a grown man, I've heard that Nod never was a nation, of Cain's offspring or anyone, but a mistranslation of wander, so Cain could go wherever and be in Nod. Far more than in God, I believe in Cain, who destroyed his own brother, and therefore, in any city, could have his wish and be alone. I should say that I'm so impressed at your ability to recite all of these from the previous book. Yeah. Um, I'm jealous. Right, and this is a poem called Jellyfish. The dark sea dreams them. They are the unexchangeable currency of dreams, 
the interest the other world pays and pays into this one. In the pre-dawn blue, they seem hewn out from the littoral like great waterlogged diamonds, an interior gleam. Who speaks for them speaks for the secret side of the womb, for they are the long-tasseled death bonnets of children we conceive but never bring to term. And so we love and jointly curse them. It is impossible now to tell if they reach for us or we for them, so strange is their volatile gravity. They are sisters to the moon then, and it pulse in her wake, a curdled blooming of echoes, as she too is an echo. But in the fluorescent pink and green pockets of their bodies, softer than night, their smuggling rumors of suns we fail to imagine. They hold whole oceans above their umbrellas. Tell me, friend, is there an end to revelation? The poison flowers blossom inside us like Rorschachs we might believe in. Evening and thunderheads in the austral sky, the jellyfish tides, an exhibition of lightnings and scaled-down Hiroshima's. If they proceed like messengers, another breed of angel, then it falls on us to hear and heed them, their cold Medusa bells resounding, calling us back through the black sand of sleep. Do yourselves a favor and buy James's new book. It, you, you will be very glad you did the suicide sign. Yeah, um, that, this, the, that was fantastic, that final reading. Um, and so I just want to thank um, very much James and David for their wonderful reading. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.